tuned in and turned on, uh, just a couple of, turn, take your Bible, join me in Genesis chapter 2. So that's where we're going to start. Um, if you're our guest today, we are glad you're here. Uh, we're grateful for your being a part of our group. Um, and let me just say to all of you, I'm glad you're here. Um, you're indicating by your presence, because of the wealth of opportunities that you've traded away to be a part of our marriage conference today, you said this relationship called marriage matters to me. This is important enough to invest time. Um, yes, there was a, a fee that uh, you paid in order to have a nice tri-tip lunch, um, but there were no other expenses that were applied to that fee. Um, this is our investment in you, and this is your investment in each other, and that's a good call. Uh, I, I don't know how many marriages I've performed. I don't know how many premarital counseling sessions I have had the privilege of doing, but I always say to the couple, when you begin this journey, you be, need to be a life investor. You build a marriage. There's going to come a day when you're going to exchange vows, and for me, that was a long time ago, but the bottom line is, is that you grow in this ability to realize the promise for which you entered into the relationship. Nobody gets married because they think it's going to be a bad deal. I've never had a couple sit in my office and say, yeah, we're going to do this a few years and then we're going to do something else. Everybody who enters into this relationship believes the best, hopes for the most, and in order for that to occur, you have to invest in your marriage. Nobody shows up fully formed and fully mature. It's why we opened this up to some folks who are not married, so that they could get a head start. Because going down the aisle and making promises, you're not ready necessarily to fulfill those promises without a level of maturity and understanding. And then if you make those promises, you're going to spend the rest of your life making good on those promises. And so I want to say, number one, good call. I want to encourage you. This is an important choice to invest. It needs to be a regular commitment in your life and home. Secondly, there are uh, papers on your table. Uh, There is no cool PowerPoint. Um, It's not because I'm old school, and I am. Um, but, But let me tell you why that is. Every study that I'm aware of says that if you take notes, you learn more. Not if you see them on the screen, but if you actually listen well enough to write down what you think matters. So that's why you're note-taking today. 10% of what you hear, you remember. 50% of what you hear and take notes on, you remember. And 90% of what you hear, take notes on, and apply, you will remember. So that's why the paper's on the table and the pens are there and Uh, not because of what I'm going to say is so profound. The Bible's profound. And the principles and the realities we talk about need to be remembered, written, and applied. So the takeaway today needs to include not only what you write, but what you do. Um, Let me talk about that, too. This is a marriage conference, and I want you to, by way of orientation, I want you to look at this as calibration adjusting, calibrating. It's like the marriage tuning fork. I had one of my cars turn four this past week, and it went over to a service center, and they plug it in, a diagnostic plug-in. 
saying, you know, this is the status of your car. And you're bummed because of the things you learned that you didn't realize needed to be addressed. Marriage conferences like this, by way of perspective, I want you to think of it as a calibrating and an adjusting time. Wherever you are, you should need to make some adjustments. Including the guy talking, there's improvement that needs to be made. Monday, I will celebrate 41 years with that gal. We dated for two. (laughs) They're clapping for you. (laughs) You endured me. Um, But we're not finished yet. And Karen can tell you there's a ongoing maturity that happens over time that should happen to you. So as you hear today, what this isn't is elbowing, I told you so, condemning, okay? Um, I'm going to have the honor of uh, performing a wedding for Nathan and Beth's daughter, Ashley, and uh, in a few weeks, the 16th. And um, what I will probably say comes out, and I brought my marriage book. This is 35 years old. I've performed every wedding with this in my hand or my pocket. It houses the first wedding I ever performed in 1988. And in the beginning of this little marriage book, I had written something that I may or may not say at Ashley and Tyler's wedding, but I wanted to start with it today because I want you to hear the spirit spirit of what it is we're chasing today. I will say to them, this is your wedding day, and apart from your salvation, your spiritual birthday, and maybe your physical birthday, because obviously physical birth means you exist, Spiritual birth means you're going to live forever in the presence of God, transformed by His grace. But apart from those gifts of life and rebirth, the gift of marriage is the greatest gift you will ever receive from God. Period. Because the man is going to receive a custom-made solution to an intrinsic reality that cannot be satisfied any other way. And God says, I'm not satisfying except in rare occasions where I've called you to singleness fully devoted to me. The normative pattern in creation is for a man and a woman to do life together. And we're going to see that in this passage. But I I will say to them what I want to say to you. The ceremony of marriage in which you've come to be united is the first and oldest ceremony in all the world. It was celebrated in the beginning in the presence of God himself. The father who walks the daughter down the aisle represents God, and the minister at the front who officiates the vows represents God. Mark already got a head start on the marriage ceremony, but there's deep biblical symbolism housed in it as it relates to this reality, God performing the union. What God joins together, which is a fundamental conviction, my marriage is made by God. And I don't get to break what God makes, except with the exclusion or the exception of hard-hearted adultery or the desertion of an unbeliever from a believer. The believer comes to faith. The unbeliever says, that's not what I signed up for, and they decide to abandon the relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 19, except for adultery, except for the abandonment of an unbeliever of a believer, This is a God-made, don't-break relationship. 
and it is the oldest ceremony in all the world performed by God. And this is the part I wanted you to hear. It was given to complete you both, magnifying the joys of your life, comforting you in its sorrows, and providing you the forum for rich and, and complete fulfillment. That's why God gave marriage. Marriage is a good idea because it was God's idea. But I would be less than honest if I said that most marriages or even that reality guarantees marital blessing and bliss because something happened with the fall of Adam. Sin happened. Depravity happened. And humanity in close proximity, which is what marriage includes, because of depravity, often accentuated by the enemy, results in injury. And marriage is often frustrating. It's even heartbreaking, and it's not meant to be. It is God's design And though it's hard, it works. You just have to work at it. And in my humble opinion, most couples who get married, even Christian ones, work at other things more than they work at this thing. And the consequence of that is failing to realize the blessing of marriage. So my hope today is that you'll look at this as an opportunity to make adjustments. And in some cases, some of you just need to turn around. You've just gone in the wrong direction. And it's rarely intentional. I uh, was telling the deacons yesterday, the Bible study leaders, when we met in this same room, that uh, I had taken a trip to uh, Spokane, Washington. I'm from southern New Jersey, so we had traveled all the way out to Spokane. I was thinking about starting a church, coming out of seminary, and we were exploring Spokane because Washington State is so void of churchgoers. And so we had gone to Spokane, and we did Yellowstone and Glacier National Park, and we decided to come back to New Jersey via Canada, so the Canadian Transcontinental Canadian Highway. So we get into Canada, we're all in a van, six guys, two of us sleeping in the back. This is like the epitome of no safety, okay? We're sleeping in the back, not belted in. One guy's in, well, two guys were in uh, folding uh, chairs. (laughs) It's a long time ago, okay? So I'm in the back sleeping, and we were teams of drivers, etc. And my father was driving the van with his teammate, who happened to be uh, my friend, Dr. Rasmussen, who teaches here. And by the way, welcome to the Masters University. You're a part of our campus today. Um, I can remember this like it was yesterday. Wayne saying to my father, Harry, isn't the sun supposed to be in front of us if we're headed east? And we were making great time. (laughs) You know how it is, you want to get home and you've got it. We're going the opposite direction. So what do you do when you realize, hey, this is not going to take me home? You stop and you turn around because you're going in the wrong direction. For some of you, you need to turn around. And this morning is meant as an assessment, evaluation, and adjustment. Because there's lots of books written on marriage, but this is the book. 
This is the blueprint for life. This is the revelation of reality. This is the truth. And we're in the book of beginnings. Genesis is the book of origins. This is how things began. Revelation, this is how it will end. Everything important in between housed in this book. At the very beginning, the book of origins, there's some critical perspective that you need. I'm going to call my weekend or my day with you today a prescription for a maximized marriage and a healthy home. Prescription. Prescription because an authority has prescribed, not suggested, what it is that needs to be done in order for you to realize what God intended and what you desire. A prescription for a maximized marriage and a healthy home. We're going to begin with what I'm going to call a full dose of perspective. Why marriage? What does marriage consist of? These first two sessions are foundational. I tell couples I married, you marry. If you don't get this, you don't get it. And I will tell you, I've been married 41 years on Monday. And I will tell you that for the first part of my marriage, having grown up in a Christian home, having gone to college and seminary, I didn't get what I'm going to share with you. I didn't. I didn't know it. I want you to get it wherever you are. If you're early in your marriage or you're late in your marriage, make adjustments because this is the blueprint. This is the origin. This works because it's God's idea. And in order for you to get it, you need to have biblical perspective regarding it. So a full dose of perspective. All right, Genesis chapter 2. In chapter 1, creation. Jonathan led us in songs, and I'm grateful for the music to kind of tune our heart. Led us in songs about the creator God. So this is creation, chapter 1, macro. By the time chapter 1 ends, everything is created. God calls it very good. Chapter 2 is micro. Apex of creation, dialing in, helping you look at something that was referenced in chapter 1, the creation of the man and the woman. But chapter 2 is going to give you some color commentary, some perspective that is necessary foundationally for you to understand the purpose of man and woman, and the necessity of this union, this gift. Verse 18 is where we begin. Now, in these verses, there are seven of them through verse 25, is the marriage verse. One of these verses is repeated three times in the New Testament, twice by Jesus when he's asked questions about marriage. This is his go-to reference point. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, will quote this verse as well as a foundation for his exhortation to husbands and wives. The marriage verse is in this section. See if you can pick it out. Here we go. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, day 6, it is not good for the man to be alone. So man made, woman not made. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Day six. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Day six. Which of these verses is the marriage verse? Verse 24. For this cause, Jesus quoted to the Pharisees and the questioners of the law in reference to whose wife is she, or can we dissolve this union, God, Jesus, quotes verse 24. Paul quotes verse 24 in Ephesians chapter 5. For this cause, man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This is the constitution, this is the Magna Carta, this is the foundation, this is marriage. Why does God give marriage? Why does he prescribe it for this cause? Some of your Bibles will say, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. What is marriage given for? Marriage is given to solve a problem. The problem is identified in verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. Marriage is designed to solve the aloneness problem. Alone is isolated. Now listen, you've got God. Is man really alone if God's in the world? Of course he's not. Well, what about the animals? This is a world without sin. You've got spot and trigger and all these animals that you can build. I use trigger because my wife loves horses and thinks that she can have a relationship with them. And we have dogs and some people think dogs are family. Animals are great, but animals are not enough. God, in his infinite wisdom, says, I'm not like you. I'm too high. I'll have a relationship with you, but not a corresponding to you relationship. The animals are not human. They're not enough for you. God too high, animals too low. What is man? Alone. There's no helper suitable. There's no corresponding companion. The first thing you need to understand about marriage is, absent this union, you're alone. You do not have, even before the fall, what you need in order to experience what man intrinsically, that is innately, needs. Loneliness 
and aloneness and isolation is a problem. Marriage is meant to provide a solution to that problem. Listen to Stanford uh, professor Philip Zimbardo. He said, I know of no more potent killer than isolation and loneliness. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. Isolation has been shown to be the central agent in the development of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, and mass murder, end quote. Dr. James Lynch, University of Maryland, wrote a book, The Broken Heart, The Medical Consequences of Loneliness, based on the premise that heart disease is connected with the lack of human companionship. One writer has articulated by way of commentary with a mobile society, kind of a disconnected society, that we're living in a world of crowded loneliness. You can go to Grace Church and be alone. You can be in the room today and be alone. It's not about the volume of people in your world. It's about a soulish connection that meets the aloneness problem. And that solution is a provision of God. So the first thing to recognize is, if you're a man, I need her. I need her. Because God's not going to give, unless he's called me to singleness, or I'm a widow, or there's a circumstance that I'm navigating where he's my husband and provider, he's not going to provide by his intention what she's designed to provide. She's essential, she's critical, and she's one of a kind. It's not multiple helpers that he needs. He needs a helper who is suitable. So the very first thing by way of perspective is, I need her to meet an essential need that God isn't going to meet or he wouldn't be alone and the animal world in its perfect form and condition cannot meet. The core concept of isolation has to do with the fact that you are relationally alone, which is why marriage is a covenant of companionship, Malachi says. The second perspective you need is to recognize, as a man, this is what I need. This is the heart of my aloneness challenge. Because the person, God, with infinite resource, diagnostic capacity, his research, his R&D department, coupled with the resources to meet this need, is infinitely competent and capable. So God looks at Adam's condition in a perfect world, in his humanity as a man, and says, you're alone. And I'm going to solve that problem. Which reveals what it is innately as a man you need. I'm going to solve that problem, two Hebrew words, with a helper, suitable. King James, help me. Two ideas. First word, helper, is the word for someone who makes up what I lack. It's a practical word. Here's the way I'd like you to hear it. You need a practical partner who will make up what you lack. This is not a glorified assistant because David said, I look up unto the hills from whence cometh my what? Help. 
My help, same word, comes from God. So God is the helper and provider of what is lacking, and He's not lower or lesser. The wife is a practical partner that is necessary to fulfill, here's the key thought, gentlemen, the mission for which God has created me and commissioned me. I have a calling. I have a designed destiny. Who I am, the talents I have, if I'm a Christian, the gifts I possess are gifts and a stewardship to fulfill a mission for which I'm on the planet. And in order for me to fulfill that mission, I need help. It's like uh, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, comes to Moses. He's judging, this is Exodus 18. He's judging all the people. And he said, man, you need help. There's too many of them. Appoint for yourselves judges. They'll handle the lesser matters. You handle the main matters because the mission that you're called to fulfill, you're not going to get it done. You're not going to last. You need practical partnership. This is not somebody to do to the laundry, mow the grass, vacuum, clean the kitchen. This is practical, missional partnership. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. I want to paint a picture, and I'm punctuating some things today because these are things that you're inclined to miss. Acts 13 There's this little nugget in this section where Luke is talking about the work of God in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. But I want you to notice in verse 34, or rather verse 36, this one statement. Because the prophetic portion involved David's pen, but it did not involve David's life because he suffered decay, which is the context, whereas the son of David did not. Verse 36, for David, watch this, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Now you can conclude fell asleep is a euphemism, he died. After it makes the declaration that David had a purpose from God, a mission. He fulfilled that mission and he died. I want to argue that David wasn't the only guy with a mission. If you look at chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. Every man on the planet is created by God to fulfill the purposes of God. A unique mission. So men, this is what I want you to hear. Not only are you alone without her, you can't get the job for which you were created and redeemed to fulfill without her. She's an essential, practical partner. She's not just somebody to keep house and make your life go. She's somebody essential to the mission for which you're on the planet. Karen is not a preacher She's not called to do what I do. She's essential to serve the purposes for which God has called me. Ladies, you're essential. Gentlemen, she's critical. Include her, treat her as if there's nothing in the world but her who can help you fulfill the purpose for which God made you and saved you. That's a value proposition. If you have a tool in your workplace that's essential to your work, 
you are, you are going to take care of it. You're going to prioritize it. She is an indispensable asset to the sovereign mission for which you exist. Just like David, just like Paul and Barnabas, and like every other man who exists, we have a stewardship before God. You cannot fulfill it without your essential partner. You're alone and you need assets. Number two, she's suitable. This is intimate companion. The literal Hebrew word means someone who fits like a puzzle piece. It was used of broken pottery, putting it back together. Corresponding, a fit. This person fits me. Proverbs translates it intimate friend. This is a relational word. This is a companion word. This is the companion of your youth. Suitable says, I need a relationship with someone who fits me. As much as my little dog wagging its tail brings me joy, it doesn't fit me. As much as the God of heaven has a relationship with me, he's higher than me. He's not like me. She is like me. I need her relationally. Intimate companion, practical partner, This is what a woman is designed to be. This is what a man needs. Otherwise, he's alone. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, or 2 rather. So God solves the problem. But I want you to notice a few verses that happen by way of context to punctuate what I just said, what God has said. Verse 19, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Question, why are we naming animals? Why don't we just jump to, I'm putting him asleep. I'm going to take a rib. I'm going to solve this problem. Why are we doing the naming of the animals? Two reasons. Number one, it highlights or illustrates the mission of Adam. He's given dominion. He has authority. He's naming the animals. This is one day. Dr. MacArthur says in his sermon on this section, and if he did 10 a minute, there'd be 3,005 hours that he would have named. The point isn't how long it took Adam. The point is that Adam is illustrating a mission. He's not only a garden cultivator, he's a dominion shower, manager. He's a steward of the world. I'm going to give you dominion. That's your job. He's illustrating his job. You know what else is happening? His situation is being clarified. He's clarifying his situation because what does he learn that God already knows? I got a problem. Everybody has a partner but me. God knew there was a problem. Now Adam does. Which leads to the passion of his response when God solves that problem. Knowledge of your need promotes passion for this priority. So God solves the problem. Verse 21, So the Lord God, Yahweh, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. 
anesthesia, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, surgery. Word rib, core, thoracic region. Out of Adam's core, God solves a core need. That's the imagery. Adam is formed, verse 7. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, the man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Adam was from inorganic material. Eve is from organic material. Women are different than men. They're different in men and how God created them, the substance from which they were created, the purpose for which they were created, the timing of their creation. Women and men are different. Can you say men to that? Women are not supposed to be men. And men are not supposed to be women. They're different. This is not a political statement. It's a biblical perspective. So God takes a rib, meets a core need from the core of the man. This is from him for him. That's the idea. Verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman. If your Bible doesn't say fashioned, you need to take it back, get a refund, and get a real Bible. Because some of your Bibles say made. It is the word fashioned. It is custom built. This is God, the artisan of the universe, creating and custom making a solution. Man was formed, woman was fashioned. He's a human mud man. He's shaped. She's a custom built work of art. So ladies... You're fashioned. The guy next to you, utility, form. (laughs) Men, when you look at her, you need to look at a -a one-of-a-kind, nobody else in the world, custom-made for me. She's essential. She's critical. I can't fulfill my mission. I'll live my life lonely. She's my life companion. You know what God didn't come back with, which is a bunch of buddies in a bass boat. (laughs) He didn't come back with a golfing foursome and a country club membership. He didn't come back with an 80-inch screen and surround sound and satellite dish tuned to ESPN. I'm using those illustrations because guys like me can fall victim to that kind of thinking. The priority for my needs are met somewhere else. They are not. Mine are met right there. And I can tell you as a young husband, full-time manager of a sporting goods store, 48 hours a week, full-time in seminary, that on Tuesday, my off day, I would sometimes tee off at 9 because they had a $5 green fee. You could play all you wanted. I'd pack my lunch, and I'd come home at sunset. Wouldn't you love to be married to me? And then we started a seminary softball team because we had some guys like Harry who played high school baseball. We were good at it. We traveled all over Virginia, North Carolina on the weekends playing softball. Wouldn't you love to be married to me? Listen, I can beat myself up in past tense, but that is just not getting it. Because as much fun as that was and as much relational camaraderie, I like the brotherhood. The brotherhood can't provide what a woman married to me can provide. 
She's fashioned. She's custom made. I've got two custom made suits and the whole arsenal of things that I might wear. Everything else is off the rack. Man, I love those custom made suits. They fit. She fits. If you're sitting with your wife today, she's made by God as a work of art. Eve wasn't the only woman custom built. In the providence and in the beauty of your creator, he provided a solution that's like no other. Why am I highlighting that? Because if you don't see her as rare, precious, and that kind of an art, you're never going to take care of her and prioritize her the way you should. And ladies, you're in a world that's performance-driven. If you don't look a particular way, you're in a social media, photoshopped culture. And you're competing everywhere you look. He should validate this. Your father should have validated this. But let me tell you who validates this. God does. You're custom-made. You're made by him and you are unique, one of a kind. You're his work of art, and he's proud of what he makes. I take that thought from verse 22 because there's another word that's not readily obvious. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. Now watch this, and brought her to the man. The Hebrew word brought is bow. It can be translated unveil. It's to formally present. It's not like God just came walking up with a girl. The artist is unveiling the art. This is used of God unveiling the universe. That's why in, we're talking marriage, Mark kind of got us started, but in weddings of old, it was very common for the bride to be veiled. She would come down the aisle with her dad, who represents God, the presenter. And dad walks down. The other thing Mark mentioned was everybody stands up. Well, let me tell you why else they stand up. Because this is a majestic moment. The music goes up. The pomp and circumstance explodes. She comes down the aisle. Every eye is on her. The father's presenting her. And when she gets to the front and he says, who, yeah, the, the words will be, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I do. And that exchange will happen. But before the exchange happens, dad unveils the girl. He presents her. He's presenting by coming down the aisle, and he's presenting by unveiling. Now listen, I performed a lot of weddings, but I can tell you my favorite spot is when she's coming down the aisle when all of the music is big and the beautiful moment, and I'm not even getting married, but I have goosebumps. It is a majestic moment because if you look at it for what it is, it is God presenting a -a one-of-a-kind solution, the artist presenting his provision. And that's what dads are. They're the artisans who are working on the girl, preparing her for the guy. When I married my son-in-law to my daughter, he sat in my living room and I said, John, you're going to finish what I started. That's your job. I'm not designed to take Wendy all the way home. I got her here. Your job is to take her there. That's what dad's doing. And God is saying, I'm unveiling her. This is a proud moment of an artist unveiling his latest creation. God proudly presents her. 
verse 23. Remember, we're getting a full dose of perspective. If you don't get this, you don't get it. Verse 23, and the man said, this is Adam who was alone before he went to sleep. The man said, Hebrew word starts first, the word is now, it's in the emphatic position. Now. I've just named every option. But now, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know what he said? This is the one who corresponds to me. This is the suitable one. She shall be called, listen to this, Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish. Do you hear the similarity? I want her to be identified with me. She has a derivative of my name. The reason women get men's names is because the man is saying, I agree with God. This is my girl. This is the solution. I want her to be identified with me. This is not Karen Snow. This is Karen Walls. This is Harry Walls giving Karen Walls my name, saying she's with me. She's my custom-made solution, partner, practical companion. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. For what cause? We already said, Harry, the aloneness problem. Well, hold it. Didn't we solve the aloneness problem? Adam's got a girl. He's got a custom-made by God girl. For what cause? Here's the key thought. The marriage that you have is part two of a solution you need. Because the aloneness problem isn't satisfied because you find the girl. It's not because you move in together. Everybody and their brother, 85% of people don't get married. They move in together before they get married, if they get married. This betrays an ignorance of understanding that the problem isn't solved without a marriage. And a marriage, as Mark said, is a covenant, not a contract. Contracts are written because of inherent distrust, right? This is a protection tool. I'll do this, you do this. You don't do this, we're going to break this. Contracts are designed in a way that they can be broken. This is a covenant. This is about 100% in even if you don't. This is a promise that is committed by vow. This is not signing a piece of paper. You get married, you do sign a piece of paper because the government wants to know you got married before witnesses. But biblical marriage is a covenant before God. That's why you got the two parties on each side. They come down an aisle in a covenant. There were two sides. These are witnesses. They are the people that are going to affirm and support and hold accountable the couple for their promises because a vow was made. They're witnesses to that vow. There's a reception following, a common meal. Vows are made, oaths are given. 
This is a commitment. And in the weddings that I do, it sounds like for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I give you my promise. It's a vow. It's not if you perform the way I want you to perform, if you meet the needs that I want you to meet. This is my promise to you that says I'm committed to you. And it's a marriage, not a contract, not living together. So here's the thought you must have if you're going to have a maximized marriage in a healthy home. Because marriage is the center of the home. Your kids are not the center. Your job is not the center. Your ministry is not the center. This is the center. Marriage, the way God designed it, is a two-part solution. It's the right person in the right place. The right person in the right place. Marriage is the right place. And marriage consists of three Hebrew verbs, verse 24, leave, my Bible, cleave, a word that we don't commonly use. Some of your Bibles will say hold fast, and become one, one flesh. Two-part solution. You don't have a biblical marriage. You don't have the solution. You might have the right person. Matter of fact, when I meet with couples, the very first thing I do, did it with Ashley and Tyler. How do you know this is what God wants? Because I've had a hundred couples sit in my office and say, we should have never got married. Which undermines the conviction we're going to stay married. Let me tell you what marriage is. Not if we stay together, it's just how. This is not something that we enter into based on circumstances and situations. Because life happens. Stuff happens. My wife is challenged with illness. That's a big deal. We can't do the things we used to do. Some days we have a normal day. Most days we don't have a normal day. I read recently of a husband who found out that his wife was suffering from a disabling disease, and I've read this more times, and maybe I'm sensitive to it, and he says, I'm moving on. I need a healthy girl. Listen, stuff happens. You enter into this one way, but life happens. I had one gal I married to an architect, she, two years into their marriage, she just lost her stability mentally. Turns out that she had gone through some ritual abuse with her family. It was beyond imagination. She spent a year and a half in the psychiatric ward because she couldn't function. So here you have this guy with a little girl, an architect with a good job, who's the gal he married doesn't at all resemble the woman he said I do to. So what does he do? He does what a man who gets this does. I'm faithful to her. I'm going to walk with her. She's God's gift to me. Guess who knew that challenge was going to unfold? God did. So whatever you've got going on at your house, God knew. And what your job is as a husband is to walk the way home. This is a trust of God the Father to a man to finish the work that some earthly dad should have begun. And if you're you're a girl who comes from a situation that's not been life-giving or edifying, there's work to be done. And the guy sitting with you is the finisher of that work. And if you're that guy, you're commissioned by God to grow up, to disciple. I tell my seminary guys, your first ministry is at home. You fail at home, you fail. 
I don't care how many books you write, how many people invite you to their conference, how many people know your name, how many buddy clicks your podcast or your videos. If you fail at home, it is your first ministry. And it's a priority. You know why? She's one of a kind. She's precious. She's a gift from God. And you need to put her in a place where you too can realize the fullness that God intended, a biblical marriage. This is a tuning fork for your life. This is where you get to make adjustments and assessments. The first exhortation I gave in this first marriage, I want to leave with you before we go to session number two. The key to marriage is not so much finding the right person. The key to marriage is being the right person. The key to marriage is not so much finding the right person, and obviously you want to find the right person. But the key to marriage is being the right person. It's not making Karen what I want her to be. It's helping and decommitting for Harry to be the man that he should be. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3 in a little bit. Two verses, one to the wife, one to the husband. If you live at Colossae, there's 108 verses in Colossians. Two of them are written to husbands and wives. Two. Ephesians, which was written at the same time, Paul's in house arrest in Rome. More verses, 11 of them to husbands and wives. Only two in Colossians. I boil it down like this. If you don't get anything else, gang, you better get this. These are the two verses you got to bank on, anchor in. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Do you notice what it doesn't say? Husbands, make your wives submit because this is the way God designed it. The imperative of a command for the woman is to the woman. Then it goes on to say two verbs for the man, husbands, Love your wife, present active imperative. In other words, as a habit, regular, consistent, you're loving your wife, and don't ever be harsh with her. An imperative that says, don't ever do this. Make sure you do this, and make sure you don't do that. Ladies, guess what it doesn't say? Wives, you make sure your husband loves you, and you make sure he's held accountable when he hurts you. Husbands, this is what you focus on. Wives, this is what you focus on. If you don't get anything else, get this. The point I want to make is the key to marriage is being the Christian you should be, because that's what precedes Colossians chapter 3, 18 and 19. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of God govern and dominate. Ephesians 5, parallel passage. Don't be drunk with wine. That's a waste. Dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the things of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God. Oh, and wives, out of that richness of your Christianity, submit to your husbands. And husbands, out of the richness of that reality, love and protect and don't ever injure your girl. That's all you're going to hear if you're at Colossae. The point of that is the key to marriage is you being who you should be. Your influence isn't in exhorting your spouse, nagging your spouse. 
It is focusing on your own responsibility to your spouse. Anybody do better if people nag you? Me neither. It's not about that. It's about me focusing on what God has called me to be, to prioritize what God has called me to prioritize. Leave, cleave, and unite is the essential greenhouse for intimacy, which is the alternative to aloneness, which is why I like verse 25. The man and the woman, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Let me tell you what that's an explanation of, the antithesis of aloneness, the opposite. We're exposed, we're not ashamed, we're intimate. Because marriage is designed to create intimacy, not isolation. The solution is the right person in the right place. And if that makes sense, will you say amen? Amen. All right, so session number two is going to be the leave, cleave, and unite. What is it you're building? What is necessary in the leave, cleave, and become one prescription? And the next session is the prescription. I'm going to prescribe three pills. They're dual action pills. Three pills that you take daily. All right, so that's what we're coming back to. But if you don't get it, the value of it, the need you have in it, the provision God has designed for it before the fall, you don't get it. And you got to fight for it because you live in a fallen world and we're challenged by our own humanity and depravity. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to explore necessary perspective. Lord, we need to align ourselves to reality, and we're in a culture that doesn't prioritize these precepts, that the woman and the man are essential partners. They're companions for life. They do life together. They share soulish things. And they're designed to share an intimacy that can be found in no other way. So, Lord, I pray that as we consider the high value of what you made and how you made it, for the men here, as they look at their girl, they'll see a richness and a treasure that may have, Lord, dimmed over the years. Maybe life has happened in a way that has diminished the perspective of incomparable worth. And I pray for the woman who's present, who doesn't feel, doesn't recognize, and doesn't live in the security and the the confidence of who you have made her to be, that you'll help her today. Because sometimes the validators, husbands, or the fathers, they don't do a good job of affirming and communicating the treasure that is the woman made in the image of God, gifted to a man for the glory of God and the good of his calling. Lord, I pray today that a woman will see her place and and opportunity and rejoice in that. Lord, that's my prayer. And I ask it for us all today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So it's 10 30.